Welcome to the BIB Interview, the weekly show from the Business in Vancouver newsroom. I'm Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver, and every week we focus on one interview in our podcast to explore a wider conversation with a prominent leader in business or a newsmaker. This time, my guest is Andrew Bibby. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Grosvenor Americas Limited, which has extensive holdings here in Vancouver and in six other centers in North America. He's a UBC graduate, an Oxford scholar, a Harvard Business School product, a rugby man too, former Team Canada player. Uh, he's been with Grosvenor for more than three decades, and he's taking his leave now, but not before building one of the most acclaimed property portfolios here and in America. He's much to say about the future of cities, including, I hope, ours. And I thought it would be a great time to talk as he retires from this chapter anyway at the ripe old age of, what, 59? 61. 61? Just, yes. Oh, okay. Oh, there you go. Well, you look younger than 61. Of course, I like to think I look younger than my own age, which shall remain undetermined at this point. Um, I think we can all uh, gauge ourselves today uh, and see the building blocks of careers on the basis of our childhood. And I'm always interested in asking leading executives, what was it about your childhood that propelled you to where you are now? Uh, I, th- I think you're asking about the industry I find myself in. My father was a contractor and he would build things, but um, he would build them for others. And uh, he, he, the company he worked for didn't retain them. So the idea of being a developer and a property investor, but also a builder indirectly, um, uh, appealed to me very much. So did, did, were you working with your hands or working with paper? Well, that, that's a very interesting question because ultimately what I do is a paper push. Right. Um, and it's amazing how 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 the the sort of creative and or building process how 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 sort of short or uninvolved you you are in it um even though that is what made it initially very interesting to you so i had a father who's a civil engineer he he's the kind of guy that knew how to fix everything he owned back when you could mm-hmm. um and uh he um, built everything around our house. So, I, you know, I was always brought up on the building. I wanted to understand it. He would explain to me compression and tension and structures, you know, when I was 12 years old. Um, and it just seemed, you know, like, like a very good thing to go into. I, I, I he, he had also studied architecture. Um, I, I thought about that. Uh, and he advised me that architecture is the most out-of-work profession there is, and I probably shouldn't go that way. <laughs> but engineering is a very in uh, profession, uh, lots of employment there. Why didn't? Why not engineering? Um, I actually thought I would go to UBC. Uh, my first degree was at UBC and uh, become an engineer. Uh, and then somebody, I can't remember, I think it was, it was a, a friend of my father's who got me excited about business. So I went into commerce instead. Were you handy with numbers? Yes. I'd say I'm pretty, good to hear, pretty right? confident. It's good to hear. It's, yeah. it's a, in, in what I do, it's, it's kind of a given. You have to be good at numbers. And so, um, so how, how early were you in life when it was apparent, by the way, that, that these spheres were going to be your spheres? The, the, there was probably a little bit of a, 
a choice to be made among them, but that you weren't, say, going to become, I don't know, a writer or you weren't going to become a, you know, you weren't to become anything other than in this area? Um, I went to uh, St. George's School, which is a private school, sort yeah. of upper middle class school, and uh, everyone there was sort of worried about whether they would amount to what their parents had amounted to. Uh-huh. And so if you looked at the, at, in the yearbook at um, what uh, people put down was their likely profession, I think probably half of them would have said lawyers because that seemed to be an acceptable thing. Yeah. I, and in fact, I think only about six out of 75 became lawyers. But you were able, I mean, I'm not, I'm sure your father was a great man, but he's still around. You've been able, to, <laughs> so you better say he's a great man yeah. here any second. But in a way, he would have been proud of the fact that you had essentially grown um, economically. You, you had a you had better standard of life than you, you. You are, I guess, the product of uh, of a generation that expected that for their children. Yeah, that they would do better. Yes, uh, very much so. Yeah. So, how then do you determine to take philosophy at Oxford? Ah, well, I didn't. Um, basically, the um, at with, with, at Oxford University, if you are an undergraduate, you get your your um, master's. Oh, sorry, you get your uh, bachelor's degree in arts. Um, I think it's three or four years later you can come back and you can um, you know pay for a dinner and they give you a master's in the arts. Oh. and it's sort of it, so it's uh, it's the, the uh, scholastic bit followed by presumed experience. The actual post uh, or um, advanced master's level middle degree um, at Oxford is a master of philosophy. So I have a master of philosophy in management studies, which I must okay. tell you does not exist any longer. It's now an MBA at the Said School of Business. Oh, okay. So, so, what, so essentially what I had was an MBA. The difference was it, 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 it uh, being Oxford, it involved doing a thesis. Well, but there must be philosophical applications in what you're doing at all times. You're, you're dealing with human behavior. You're dealing with uh, moral dilemmas. You're dealing with ethics. You're dealing with, well, you're dealing with the whole panoply of philosophical. Yes, there are, and, and oh, I, although I didn't do it at Oxford, I, at UBC, I remember doing a very good philosophy course, which has helped me over the years. Yeah. What's then the human application of that? What, what, what do you feel? Is it because, it, again, it, it can be considered a, a, a remote uh, discipline, and yet it has, of course, the application with all of our lives. How, how do you feel you've been able to take that learning and integrate it into your commerce learning and your your eventual, you know, masters of business learning. Um, well, it, it it involves questions of right or wrong. It, it, it involves questions of fairness. Um, uh, I, you know, I could I, I could think of other, but so it so did it then have you think? Um, did all of this have? the impact on you on the kind of executive you felt you could or wanted to be? Uh, yes. I, 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 I certainly believe, and back to fairness, I certainly believe in treating people fairly. Um, I, I'm interested in uh, politics, the rule of uh, law very much, rule of law. I, I'm more or less riveted 
or addicted to what's happening south of the border right now, mm-hmm. precisely because it's such a travesty. And, and you have a very powerful person there who really has no regard for that kind of inquiry or even attempting to understand what it is that other people are, are, are up in arms about. I, I can ask you so many questions about Donald Trump, but I, I, I'll start with this one, which is a lot of businesses are very quickly beginning to shower him with praise because of tax cuts, ignoring all of these other things that are taking place. Where do you situate him that way? Um, well, he's, uh, he will, um, I think he, he says what he thinks he needs to say to uh, get the support of his base. Um, a segment of the right wing, a very large segment in the right wing, is obsessed with tax cuts. It, it is their sole economic policy. Now, I'm, I'm uh, not for excessive taxes at all, but um, I think we have a much better society as a result of, uh, a result of taxation. And um, there, are, there are frankly things that um, um, government does well that nobody else can do. I mean, obviously the military is one of those things, but I think also um, education is another. Um, uh, the provision of health care uh, is another. Um, obviously running, um, uh, running our legal system. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, and your projects are in many cities where there is still a great deal of disparity great deal of inequity it's you know some of the some of the cities are fantastically wealthy but they also feature uh you know feature kind of a, a almost significant human suffering yes that then you know that then calls upon government yeah and i i think that you're fooling yourself if you don't think that government is the best way of addressing this um canada's from my perspective, a much fairer country than the U.S. Yeah. How, how do you, you as a Canadian working a lot in the United States, spending a great deal of your time there, um, how in the last couple of years have we become a bit of a different object for Americans? Um, I think uh, I would have, uh, I haven't given this so much thought lately, but about three or four years ago, I would say Canada was pretty cool. You know, we we do a lot of things extremely well. Um, we, I think, um, our our immigration policies, for instance, have have resulted in a very positive um, experience for the country, both economically and socially. Yeah, is America ready to learn anything from Canada, though? Uh, that's a good question. Um, parts of it are. I yeah. guess so. I mean, there, there's no question. I, 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 I'm, I am aware there that there are there are people who are resentful, who are looking for somebody to blame, and I think Donald Trump has done a very good job of blaming those people. And and what's particularly outstanding is that he's he wants he's expecting people will feel better um, because he has singled out, called out. And and verbally punished those uh, those people. You and I talked before we started about politics and and uh, what do you what do you think Donald Trump is in a way teaching us about politics now? Um, I, I don't know really. I don't give him much credit for thinking 
above a, above a certain level. I think he's a he's a fairly primitive guy in his in his thought process. He's certainly very primitive in the way he expresses his thoughts. Um, I think he he has a very strong um, visceral sense of how people are feeling and what he can do to infuriate them. Yeah. Does does his um, approach clash with a company like yours in the sense of what your objectives are in a community? Do, is, has it trickled down to that level yet? Um, I don't think I, I I couldn't really. He doesn't work at that level, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we 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 were. But he's a big for, city developer in a certain sense, right? He, that's, that's. I think you'll been. find that most people don't. That are developers in the U.S. don't really think Donald Trump's a developer. Okay. So you know he hasn't really developed anything for years. He slaps his name on things. What he runs is actually not very big, from what I can see. Yeah. I also want to uh, ask you about rugby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a, a game I I haven't played much, uh, but I will say I mean it. Uh, I was very impressed with the fact that you were able to still walk in here on your own steam. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, what did it teach you? Uh, well, teamwork for one thing, everyone, everyone says they're a team. Everyone talks about, you know, being a team, but it, it involves not always being the star, sacrificing yourself for somebody else's, uh, you know, betterment. Um, I, I just, just general cooperation, which you, you know, I, I like that when it, it comes, I've only hired one rugby player ever, but I like to see that in, yeah. in somebody, um, in terms of, um, leadership, uh, I was lucky enough many times to be captain of good teams. And it taught me a lot about hand, uh, how, how to handle people. And their, you know, their expectations. So tell me about that. Tell me about what what the application has been over to the executive suite in the boardrooms for you, and and how it is that you've been able to use the sense of either collaboration or understanding. Well, of it's someone else. It, it's um, for one thing, being empathetic, so seeing something from somebody else's perspective, right? Um, uh, being, you know, knowing when knowing when to push knowing when to give people latitude to make their own decisions um no uh, you know knowing what is what is absolutely crucial in the thing that we have to focus on right now with the problem at hand hmm. have have you thought much about why sport is such a teacher um one thing is because you do it again and again and again which uh, you know in business everything takes longer right it, it uh, the cycle of yeah. of an exercise whereas you know games you can have you have multiple games um it's uh, well rugby is a particularly interesting game because um it's uh, you know you you said i i don't know because though i'm all broken up well the reason i'm not all broken up is because i'm a back yeah meaning i'm i'm my job was to not to run into people but to elude them um, or as my uh, friend of mine, I just spent last weekend with Hans de Goody, who was a very big player. He he says there are two types of rugby players: they're piano players and they're piano movers. <laughs> He's a piano mover. I was a more of a piano player. Yeah, and yeah. And, and so your ears are not all no, cauliflower. No, exactly. Well, I never even get close to that. But it, but it's interesting to so what, one of the things about rugby that's so interesting is um, the are, are there not many sports where the kind of physique or attributes 
uh, required for different positions are, are so different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I could I could look at somebody and tell you probably what kinds of positions they might play. Right. So everyone is because they look at me. I'm 180 pounds, six feet, mm-hmm. um, and, and um, I'm not a large man. But um, uh, so play, people automatically assume you know, I must have had a hard time or something like that. But in fact, it was quite the opposite. No, you were swift. Yeah. 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 I was a running back in high school and I, I, yeah. I don't think I ever got over 165 pounds. Far, far. Yeah. And, well, and, that was more like my playing weight. Actually. Yeah. You're 170. Something yeah. Like that. But I, I play goaltender now in hockey. Right. And I can play, I could probably play until I'm 90, right? Because there are leagues for that. How long do you get to play for rugby? Uh, how, if, how late? If you're sensible. Um, and I played at the top level here till I was 35. Um, there are people who play, uh, what are they called, over 40s rugby. Yeah. And you can do it, but it, it's, it's rugby, is, it, it, the, the risk reward isn't really there. doesn't sound I'm like I'm not that. going to be as good as I was, so I don't know why I'm doing it. And you can really get hurt. Yeah. And that will really affect the rest of your life. That's right. And so to me, for me, it was something I did for a certain period of life in a, in a, in a, uh, um, in a fairly... Uh, what's the word? A controlled environment. Yeah. I was playing with players who were good, who were not going to set me up for you know an awful tackle and things like that. So, but when when you start playing more of a social brand of the rugby, which you've probably seen guys play at uh, Brockton mm-hmm. Oval, um, you're taking a risk. Yeah, I can always find a level of game, and I think I'll be able to do that for another fifteen twenty years because of just because of the mass involvement in a country like ours of mm. hockey. Yes. Right? Yeah. You can find that. Rugby, not so simple, I no, think. No, but but the, you go to a country like New Zealand and rugby yeah. is to them what hockey is to people here. Yeah, exactly. And you go to the beach in the summer and everyone's playing touch rugby on the beach. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a great challenge. Do, do you give back down to the sport? Are you... are you? I'm on the board of Rugby Canada. Yeah, yeah. And so I, you know, I give them financial support. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you know... Um, Grosvenor is the um, the title local sponsor for the rugby sevens. sevens. Yeah, exactly. The sevens have, in a lot of ways, ignited. I think an entire generation here uh, that yeah. maybe wasn't all that familiar yeah. with the game. Uh, was, and and do we do you think we we have this? Um, do we have a sustainable future as a world middle power in the sport? Um, well, right now. It, it, these are not good days for Canadian rugby. We used to be sort of 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. 13 in the world. I think we're now at 25, and we um, we have not yet qualified for the World Cup um, next year. Mm. Um, on the other hand, um, in large part because of the seven side, when the New Zealand Maori All Blacks played here um, a few months ago, 30,000 people showed up to the game. That, that's the biggest crowd ever for rugby in Canada. So there, there, there's, it's going to take a while. This there's, is only our third, or sorry, second year. Yeah. Yeah. So there's almost the way there's the enthusiasm of the audience may build the participation yes. in the sport at some point. Yes. Right. Um, but it's, and then unlike football, parents don't have the same concussion fears right. in rugby. Yes. Because, because you're not wearing a helmet. Right. Well, you, you know the history of rugby is it, or sorry, uh, the history of American football or gridiron or whatever. It, it came from rugby. Yeah. 
And it was supposed to be a safer version of rugby, I believe, because Teddy Roosevelt told them he would outlaw the game because people kept getting hurt. So they they had a few innovations, including um, stoppages of play once a tackle happens, you know, that, that therefore the downs in, in, in football. That's why uh, there's only 11 minutes of actual action exactly, in a yeah, football game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, but they also, they, they brought in another innovation, which was a forward pass. Um, but um, they brought in padding, which started out essentially being protective so a leather helm, a leather cap, yep. you know, a few small pads in the in the sweater. Eventually, around the face. And then some idiot invented this hard plastic helmet, and it made all these players inv- invulnerable. Yeah. And and um, so you and made you, them torpedoes. And to- as well. Torpedo. And so yeah. you 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 now have no regard for yourself when, and therefore you have no regard for anybody else. So I think what needs to happen, and I know that the purists will just hate. <laughs> Take this. the helmets off. Take the well, padding, it seems counter, the away. It seems counterintuitive. Well, or at least reduce them. And b- because there is so much money in mo- involved, and I'm thinking of liability. Uh, this is something that, that oh, they're, they're going to have to address. Well, the NFL, I think, is looking over its shoulder at the NBA and right. a couple of other things saying we may not be yeah. the big sport much longer. Yeah. By the way, I can never understand why America is not a powerhouse in rugby when it has all of these amazing running backs. They don't, it helps to have played the game. I mean, it, and it's a, it's a game where it's all about continuity. So when you get tackled, it's very important what you do next. And that, that's actually quite a sublime skill. You know, involves strength and so on. But um, the, the U.S. actually are becoming a, a, a world power. They're, they're doing better than Canada at the moment. Hmm. Um, and if if you uh, talk to people in world rugby, they want the game to spread. And of course, the best market in the in the world is the U.S. Hmm. And to some extent, we benefit from that yeah. because we're part of it. And you know, I'm hoping that one day we'll be able to put on a World Cup in North America. Yeah. So. So uh, uh, did your parents feel safe with you in rugby? Uh, my mother um, hated watching it. And, she, and she, asked, she, she I would ask her if I could, you know, if she'd come to a championship game, something like that. And she'd say, is it a rough team you're playing? And so, <laughs> so no, they're, but, but back, funnily it's, enough, it's flag rugby. The, but, yeah, mom, yeah. Rugby, when I, were, when I played, was uh, the, the men are bigger and stronger and faster now than when I played. But the game was dirtier. It was far dirtier, oh, and it's because yeah. this, you know, the the the, the we, they're now far more like ice hockey or football. There used to be just one official. Now it's four or five officials and a TV official. And if you um, you're found to be doing things like stepping on somebody's head, um, you won't. You'll be out for a number of games, and that could and certainly the the rest of that game. So, so as a back, you would have only been largely. The recipient, yes, of the bad stuff. Oh, I'd be the recipient of a sucker punch if somebody ran behind me, yeah. and they thought they, you know, it, I'm not saying it happened all the time, but it did happen. Um, and so again, bring it back to business. What did that then tell you about fairness, and what did it, what you know, the having been you know, abused a little bit in the, on the field, does then make you go, okay, I I understand how I can't do that. Um, yes. Uh, well, um, 
we um, the company I work for is a great company to work for because um, it believes in doing the right thing, which includes playing by the rules. Yeah. Um, now a lot of businesses say that, Andrew. Oh, we do it. I, I absolutely no compunction in saying that is what we do, and it, okay. it's it's very common. Throughout. What are the right things you do that you think maybe others claim to do but don't? What are the, what are what are the what are those things? Um, keeping my word, you know, even even if there may not be you know a formal written contract or something like that, just okay. just just doing what I said I would do. Oh. And and I'd say that's pretty that's pretty common throughout the company. Yeah, yeah. So you've seen the city grow and grow and grow and grow, and I know you do work all over North America, and you obviously have international relationships that you have to tend to inside the company a lot. But um, based on what you what you experience here, and you're out at UBC Properties Trust, you you know you you have a really good sense of the community with the projects that you're doing. What, what's What's working? What's wrong? Uh, uh, what's wrong with what the provision of no, the, the 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 city? There's um, well, I am I'm actually quite optimistic about the city. Um, now we, we we have chosen as time goes by um, just to work in certain municipalities. N- nothing bad. About, it's just bad about other municipalities. It's just that. Uh, when people see us again and again, and they see that we do a good job of something, they're subsequently more uh, because almost everything we do involves some sort of planning consent, mm-hmm. some sort of some some sort of rezoning, and um, you need um, community support to be able to to do that. Uh, and although it, it's very clear that that is. Um, well, from a from a developer's perspective, um, and I'm actually from a citizens' perspective. I, I know citizens think that uh, you know this is unfair. Somehow the developer had an advantage; they got to the yeah. politicians or something like that. Well, often uh, you know what developers feel is um, uh, all this was was just ganging up by a bunch of people whose own interests say we're, we're we, you know we we've got a project over in. Um, a great project at Ambleside, Grover Ambleside. And in reality, most of the people objecting to the project were people whose views were blocked and they were six blocks back from the water. And, you know, it's a bit hard to take that when you know it's just massive self-interest and and really trying to, um, you know, better their position through a political... Why do you think, though, that there is such antipathy directed toward developers in this city. I, you know, I've lived in some other cities and I can't recall it feeling the same way as it does right now, right here. Well, I think the, there's, there's a resentment of high house prices of, of the developers as, you know, being massive beneficiaries of this, um, which, I mean, is true, but it could easily go the other way. I mean, I would, I would argue that right now, Prices are just too high. We're being extremely careful. Uh, we're not going out and, and uh, making crazy bids on on properties. Do you think something's going to happen? In uh, uh, well, at some, uh, as they say, it- trees don't grow to the sky. So you know, we're seeing higher and higher end values. But there are properties that have sold recently that you couldn't justify the price that has been paid for land. Uh, when you consider what 
finished, say, con- res- condominium units are selling for. Uh, it's obviously developers are, uh, some developers are uh, paying those high prices with the expectation they're going to con- continue to go up. And at some point, they will be wrong. Yeah. And, um, and that's the way markets work. What responsibilities do you think a developer has to a community? I uh, that, that's a good question. I think to, to I think to improve improve the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we do it. We don't do it as a um, you know as a, as a as a team. You know, we do it as individual um, economic actors. But it's funny how people like you know they love cities. They love the place where they live, and that was done by developers. You know, and, and so it, what is the, the sort of natural um, area of conflict involves change. So you are changing something that somebody has that they value. Um, and I mean, sometimes you know, they've, they, it's a, a, what do you call it, win-loss win situation. Yeah. There's no win-win. We always try to, I know it's very trite to say it, but we go, for, you know, we look for win-win opportunities. We know we can't, we will, there will always be people who will oppose everything or anything. In fact, I, I once had a neighbor who, who, uh, uh, was, lived diagonally opposite me and there was somebody across the road from me wanted to, uh, take a large old house. It was really quite a rundown house and subdivide his lot and turn it into something else. Um, or, or, or you know, would have been two dwelling units. And, um, so um, I ended up talking to him about it, and he said to me, Andrew, the way I look at it, if somebody else is gaining, I must be losing. <laughs> and that's to, to some, that's, uh, that's answers your question about the antipathy. Yeah. Now, to the ex- And that's a very Trump-like it, situation too, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. Everything's a zero-sum it, game. Yes, no, he thinks in those terms. Yeah, yeah, I haven't won unless I know you're hurting. Yeah. I, I, I've worked for people who think, Unless the uh, unless they know that the seller is in distress, they're not happy with the price that they pay. Yeah, exactly. Um, you would understand, though, the international context uh, much more acutely, I think, than a lot of other executives in the development community in the city. Um, so, are our problems all that unique? Not at all. Um, uh, the, the in fact, I'd say they're relatively mild when you consider, say, a place like London. They don't build any housing unit or hardly any, any housing unit. We are building them. We're not building enough of them. And we, uh, we, we aren't building them in areas we should be building them. them like, when, you, when you say that. Uh, well, for instance, I, you know, ultimately there, um, uh, the sky train will be extended along Broadway. Um, I think it should go beyond Arbutus. I think it should go all the way up to, um, UBC. Uh, UBC. Yeah. Uh, UBC is is a little is be- becoming a little town all its own, yeah. uh, um, no, no. and and from there it should probably come back uh, heading east um, up Forty First. It's going to go th- past a lot of land, you know, the the government lands that um, First Nations have uh, acquired on the way up up the hill in, into UBC. Um, uh, it's near where the the golf course at UBC, which one day will be First Nations land. It's near sh- and would come back. Um, along 41st by Shaughnessy Golf Course, which will be First Nations land. Do you think that in the era of the autonomous vehicle, we're going to need subways? Yes, I do, actually. Do you? Yeah. Um, Subways are very efficient. Yeah. But aren't we also moving toward 
fewer and fewer. Well, I mean, even at UBC, the bricks and mortar right now is almost at peak. I can't imagine that they're going to be building, building, building oh, more, the, the, more the, student, more, more, more places to learn there. They're, they're, you know, don't you think to be things like remote learning and virtual reality learning and all these types of things that may not require so many young people to be out there five mornings a week. Um, it's you make the same arguments about office space. Yeah, but people have social needs, and mm. and yeah, you know, I don't I, don't you remember being at school having a summer where you weren't working at all, but how much you know playing every day, but. It was just great to go back to school in September and see your friends. People are like that. They have social needs. Mm. I mean, you could say the same thing about retail, actually. And, and yeah. retail and office are uh, sectors in, 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 of real estate where, you know, all the technology suggests that there should be less of it. But because of this social need, it, 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 it hangs in there. It, yeah. Or it's going to be different. Now, I know one thing you've, you've thought a lot about is the smart city and and what kind of uh, early implementation we we should expect to see i, I mean i'm looking We're not at sure what you mean by smart city well the you know the the wired place the the place that where the buildings are are essentially uh, uh they're they're doing a little bit of their own thinking around uh energy around uh around things like lighting and functionality and integration okay. into into that and where and where you've got things like traffic flows that are that are m better monitored better manipulated by technology to to make traffic more effective all of those types of things that we're starting to see i mean even I, although i know it's 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 not getting great reviews right away uh, google sidewalk experiment in toronto um, there's a high expectation that that is going to lead to a higher caliber of life through technology and that the developers are going to have to play a pretty significant role in all of that. Well, if it's if it involves the, the properties that we uh, acquire our own, um, yes, of course it will. I mean, smart buildings, uh, I, mm. I've never heard smart cities, but um, I mean, that was around when I started 35 years ago. In, in fact, we, the Grosvenor building downtown, because it had a shared telephone system, which became obsolete itself in, in, in a very short, short order. Mm -hmm. But we thought we had the first smart building in Vancouver. You could do a lot of those things. Yeah. It, it, the, the possibilities, I think, that we have as a community, because we have, a, I think, a, a higher quotient of technology than most cities our size uh, across North America. But we also have a, a pretty significant uh, role nationally as a port and all that. As as a again as a developer, are you playing in in cities that have those kind of almost conflicting roles at times, and and how you manage to reconcile it and what you build? I'm not sure. What, I'm sorry. I don't. No, it, it, but you, we have a we have a dual role here in a way. Right. We have a, a new economy and a bit of an old economy. Right. And uh, and that. It creates almost a uh, a bit of not a schism, but it creates uh, at times a bit of a conflict in terms of what kind of city we want for ourselves. And you know, as a developer, do you you have to think through what your projects are going to are going to address and where what that market is going to be and who who will be the consumers for it. Yeah. Oh well. First thing we think about is needs. 
and and um, whose needs we can satisfy. Um, uh, in terms of old economy, new economy, every, everyone will there'll always be an old economy. You know, somebody you need plumbers, even yeah. even in you know. Um, Google, whether in, in in Google headquarters, yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's what you mean, but um, or uh, you, you could be talking about winners and losers, you know, by virtue of those who are benefiting because they are in the new economy. Yeah, um, uh, frankly, I mean, we're we're intermediaries, you know, we we uh, we end up fulfilling the needs that we can identify in which um, present themselves. Yeah. And very often the people who have those needs are the people who are going somewhere else. I mean, really, we're in the business ultimately of shelter, of any number of things, whether it's, you know, a warehouse or an office building or, or a place where you shop. Um, and there are, I mean, one thing about buildings is um, they're, they, they, they're expensive, they last a long time, and if they're done properly, they're eminently adaptable. And you know, it's so when we talked many years ago about smart buildings and you know all the um, possible things you could do that, would, that the buildings would do automatically. You know, you could turn on the uh, 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 lights automatically. I mean, this is all trite, trite stuff now. No, but, but at the but time that was actually it, it was that was a great space, breakthrough. Space the the idea time. that you could walk into a yeah. hallway and the lights would come on. Uh, yeah, and how the, how all this would um, you know render buildings obsolete. I went to a I was I don't think I'd worked for Grosvenor very long, um, maybe six months and we went down to San Francisco for a um, conference and an architect stood up and said aren't we really just talking about installing more conduit in buildings meaning you know channels through which we can ultimately feed wires now of course that's becoming obsolete yeah. because now you don't even need you know you don't need wires yeah um, and and that's that's the future yeah um, um, somebody in the construction industry once told me that uh, that in order to fulfill the infrastructure needs of um, of a place like ours here, British Columbia, that they needed to probably have somewhere around one in seven graduates into the trades, but that the number is really something like one in sixty nine. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I, w I wouldn't think it was that out of whack, um, but it, it, no, there's there's absolutely no question. I mean, you, you can, if you if you live in a city like. Well, I'm, let's, let's take San Francisco. It's a better example. Where there's a great deal of tech wealth built there. The rates that um, construction workers get paid is, is enormous because they have an expertise that's needed, and you cannot import it from elsewhere. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so. Uh, you're right. It's it's is it uh, is it hard for you guys to keep to retain people? And for well, for Grosvenor as a company. Um, we always work at it. We actually have a very good uh, record at retaining people. It's a good place to work, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can go on about it. Uh, in, in terms of uh, the people who actually do the, um, the building for us, um, they have a heck of a time. Um, and and uh, not surprisingly, for instance, the Ambleside job, there's, there's traffic on the uh, Trans-Canada Highway coming across the bridge. And so workers don't, they A, want to start at five in the morning and miss the traffic, and they want to be gone by one or two, and they certainly don't want to work overtime, you know, and so that, that's kind of a, it's making it 
work more expensive. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, last couple of things, Andrew. I mean, uh, I really want to hear. You know, you're you're too young to not do anything again, right? What kinds of things do you want to do now? Well, I I deliberately not made any decisions. I, well, I know what I don't want to do, and that's to work for somebody. I could work with somebody, or I could um, I perhaps invent, make some investments. I've got some ability to do that uh, kind of thing. Um, I I could um, uh, I do some board work now. Some of it for profit, some of it not for profit, and some of it which looks like it's for profit, but it's really not for profit. And I could I could do um, I could do you know some some more of that. I can't do it now because I just it, it, it would be too much. But it would I don't just want to get on boards. I want to do something that I like. Well, have have you figured out? I mean, I'm always interested in in how people are going to approach the real partitioning with what has been the mainstay of their adulthood. And in this case here, your, you know, your tenure at Grosvenor, which goes back to what, 84, somewhere? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there you are uh, now with uh, pretty well 35 years in one company. Do you, do you then build for yourself uh, a pause button here that, that then says, um, I'm, my head is still too fuzzy with my day-to-day things, I need to, I need to kind of cleanse myself a little bit here and think through the next chapter. I think I'm probably going to do a lot of reading, yeah. which I don't. I, I read reports now. I don't. I I, I never read novels. So not, I, I not, don't read for pleasure. Yes, yeah, so no and, more reading for work for a while. Exactly, and that, yeah. that'll be great. But but you know, for the, some of the boards I'm on, there's a fair bit of reading. Yeah. Do, do you feel compelled though to jump? back to something no and i i think i'm the kind of person who just can't be bored because i will just do something if i'm bored yeah but don't you have to in order to figure out what your next chapter is bore yourself a little bit yeah there is that that's that 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 um technique you use when you're procrastinating you know not doing something is just sit still and don't do don't, don't allow yourself to do anything unless it's that thing next and you will your mind needs it you know are you um repelling the entreaties from others to say oh great you're going to be available let's let's do something i've i've had some discussions with friends former colleagues um that who would like to do some things um but i'm not in a rush you know to yeah i mean the obvious thing for me to do is some something along the lines of what i've done uh, but um, obviously, in, in, it's instinct? not Grosvenor, so it would be smaller. And is that where you're leaning right now? Uh, I, I'm not trying to pull no, this no, out of no, you, I, but, I, I'm, but I'm looking for like clues about how what your thought process is. Um, I could see some really good opportunity coming out of the blue and saying yes, and I'll just change my plans if if that's what you're asking. Yeah. But I I. I have no plans to become sort of newly active uh, at the moment. I, th- I think it would be no. It's been a long, long time that I it have has been. that I. I mean, and I, how, y- how many miles have you logged? Any idea? Oh, I'm always. Um, I have no idea. I'm always in the super elite by July of each <laughs> of each year. And in fact, I mean, as, as an aside, I've, I've, I've already traveled fourteen or fifteen trips this year and i found myself a few weeks ago with deep vein thrombosis and then i got a pulmonary embolism oh my god i know it's quite serious and and, uh and i and and of course 
because I'm traveling and working, um, I ignore it. I th- assume I have a virus. And then somebody finds, the only reason I go to a doctor is because somebody convinces me I might have pneumonia. And and then the doctor figured it out pretty quickly and said, you better go to emergency. And, uh, so. Huh. Well, I guess I should wish that you get out of super elite then. <laughs> right. And, uh, yes. you know, kind of... Uh, lay low for a bit yeah but it's been great talking to you i want to thank you for your generosity with time today i've learned a lot i thank you i'm very interesting yeah it's biv today i'm kirk lapointe editor-in-chief of business in vancouver thanks for listening